Uh, welcome to the third and final episode of the Duty Jews in Vietnam and Lessons for the Royal Australian Navy, hosted by the Australian Centre for the Study of Armed Conflict and Society at the University of New South Wales, Canberra. I am Vice Admiral Peter Jones, a member of the Naval Studies Group within AXACS. The series is produced in partnership with the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society, the REN Sea Power Centre and the Submarine Institute of Australia. These three episodes on the service of the REN Charles F. Adams class destroyers is proudly sponsored by the designers of the new Hobart class destroyers, Navantia Australia, with the assistance of the Australian Naval Institute. We'd like to thank Navantia Australia for their generous support. In the final episode, we'll look through the lens of a junior officer and a junior sailor. To begin is Captain David Kotzel. The links between uh, what I'm about to say and previous speakers will leap out at you. I was asked to draw on my experiences as a junior officer in uh, Vietnam operations and how they affected my personal thinking and evolution as a naval officer. The words culture and professionalism were used. What were a young man's beliefs and needs and a young man's illusions? I ruminated over this question of evolving professionalism and culture for weeks before resolving last weekend under the shower that the answer lay in two photos. That's the gun room of HMAS Sydney, Port Lincoln, November 1966. Midshipman Henry Old on the left, David Kotzel on the right, counting the cost, and yes, there are 26 ounce cans of Fosters. I never made it ashore in Port Lincoln. Not much culture, not much professionalism. And here is the after photo. Australia Day Parade, Newcastle, 26th of January, 1971. Lieutenant Cotswold leads the crew of HMAS Parramatta down the main street of Newcastle with pride and military bearing. The two photos could not be more contrasting. This presentation is about what happened between those two events. And that leads us into the realm of reminiscences. Memory is a slippery bastard. It tends to take a more cavalier view of the past than an accurate one. Sometimes you have to rely on external evidence to reconstruct the true sequence. Even this is contestable because every document is written by someone and that someone also draws on reminiscences and recall. What follows, therefore, is a personal memoir there are people in this room who are present at some of the things I shall describe, and their memories will be different. I ask them to accommodate my intellectual arrears in this regard, and any diversity of view. The question also brings into conflict one's observations of operational procedures and one's observations of the ship itself. They are not the same thing. Procedures are just that, processes, practice, practices and traditions underpinned by doctrine, training and rules. Ships, however, 
are little worlds, isolated from the outside, with their own politics and personal dynamics, and with a collective personality that is quite volatile in the face of the unexpected. The souls who comprise ship's companies are generally young. First and foremost, the young should always concern themselves simply with living, with experiencing. The world lives open to the young people of the day. My experiences in Hobart in 1968 were definitely formative in that regard. Two colleagues and I, my colleagues were Henry Old and uh, Howard Dixon, joined Hobart 25 days before she departed for her second Vietnam deployment. I was a naive short service commission officer with two years elementary training behind me and somewhat romantic notions of what naval service entailed. Of that two years, only 23 weeks had actually been at sea, although it did involve escorting Sydney in Stuart on one trooping cruise in May 1967. Joining when we did, we had missed most of Hobart's Vietnam workup, work up, but were aboard for its final pre-deployment battle problem called Operation Kesara, which I thought curiously fatalistic for a ship about to deploy for real-world operations in a war zone. I was promoted acting sub-lieutenant two weeks before Hobart cast off. Nothing in the DDG resembled anything I'd hitherto come across, and I felt well underdone in the way of training. The ship was unnervingly foreign and seemed to my impressionable eyes strikingly modern, although I suspect I subsequently learned such was not the case. Crystal-tuned UHF radios come to mind. Nor were superiors inclined to accommodate my protestations of ignorance. History does not record the punishing words that passed from their lips on my, journal of personal, my journey of personal discovery. There was a sense of urgency abroad, of direction and focus. I quickly understood that I'd better get with it, for there was no place to hide and no passengers could be abetted. My duties on joining were Assistant Gunnery Divisional Officer, Assistant Focal Officer, Assistant Navigation Officer, Shore Patrol Officer, Recreation Officer and Laundry Officer, AA Control Officer in the third degree of readiness initially, and then Bombardment Control Officer. There was a colloquial name for this miscellany, which dignity, dignity requires I refrain from using, but the old hands among you know what I mean. Of these duties, by far the most relentless, soul-destroying and tricky was that of laundry officer. This required reserves of resilience that I sadly lacked. The laundry was equipped with industrial washers and dryers of impressive dimensions, steam presses to cope with every shape of garment, and even a little machine that wrapped plastic bags around freshly laundered shirts, upon which, as you have heard, the laundrymen could place little black bow ties. It seems that the USN had trained laundry sailors. In Hobart in 68, we had recalcitrant stokers and a few men under punishment. <laughs> Other than the engineer officer and the captain, no officer's laundry ever seemed to be returned clean, or perhaps even returned at all. And I was daily assailed with complaints from my brother officers. The results of my laundry endeavours were apparent to me at every meal 
as I eyed the standard of dress of my fellow officers around the dinner table. Those of you who remember Ensign Pulver, Jack Lemon, in the film Mr Roberts, being encouraged by the Captain James Cagney not to put too much starch in his shirts, will get the gist. To come to the point of this story, however, I learned a serious lesson in that even when preoccupied in a combat zone, small domestic things really matter, more so than in peacetime, because they introduce normality into what was abnormal and familiarity into the unfamiliar. In later years, I played the closest attention when my duties required to the mail, the distribution of the broadcast news, the quality of the dog-eared paperbacks in the ship's library, and the acquisition, by theft if necessary, of the best movies available in the fleet. I apologise for the paperwork. And until the end of my sea days, when I was duty officer in harbour, I followed the old and by then lapsing practice of attending the galley when the evening meal was being served, much to the bemusement of the chefs. Hobart birthed at a lava pier in Subic Bay on the 31st of March. The sheer scale of the place overwhelmed me. Where did the RAN fit into all this, I asked myself. Matters of interoperability loomed whatever one tried to do. Even the USN supplied charts were different. Interoperability, I suddenly understood, was at the bottom, was the bottom line of everything we did. This was an enduring theme in my later career as a communications officer. Subic was the first place I confronted it. Hobart's second deployment from March to October 1968 might be seen in two parts. The first was spent operating off the uh, demilitarised zone and the North Vietnamese coast, conducting Operation Sea Dragon. The second period was spent south of the DMZ on Operation Market Time. These two periods were separated by the incident on the 17th of June and the ensuing six weeks that we were out of operations. Operation Sea Dragon had the objective of cutting sea lines of communication from North Vietnam into the south and to destroy land targets with naval gunfire. The shore bombardment targeted truck parking areas, choke points, stores dumps, fuel dumps and logistically important roads and bridges north of the DMZ. During these bombardment operations, Hobart in 68 normally formed a task unit with one other destroyer, typically a US Fram 2, armed with six 5-inch 38 guns. On one occasion, however, we teamed up with an ageing Fletcher-class destroyer, shown here, photographed from the quarterdeck of Hobart when she was alongside. I apologise to the Fletcher-class destroyer, I don't remember her name. The coast would be closed at high speed and at action stations, which for me at that time was on the bridge as assistant navigator. The ship would turn, still at high speed, onto the firing course, about 16,000 yards from the coast, with the consort further inshore to provide counter-battery fire, as well as firing on the main target. The fall of shot might be observed by special forces ashore, an airborne spotter, a drone launched by the consort, or in the case of counter-battery, visually from the ship itself. But some of these bombardments were unobserved. 
I confess to being a little sceptical about the effectiveness of this shore bombardment, especially when the fall of shot was unobserved, and partly because what I had been taught about the settling time of maritime gyroscopes and the range from the target, which was normally 16,000 yards plus. The enemy sometimes shot back, which was not unreasonable from their point of view. The task unit would turn away and make smoke, returning fire while doing so. On one occasion, the XO, Ian James, proudly displayed some shrapnel that came inboard, which represented a sort of initiation, I suppose. On another occasion, the consort was observed to be straddled, USS Colette, as I recall. The most terrifying event for me during Sea Dragon, however, was the 36 hours Hobart was detached as rescue destroyer to the 40,000 tonne aircraft carrier USS Bonhomme Richard operating in the Gulf of Tonkin. I felt much more comfortable under the guns of the North, North Vietnamese shore batteries than under the port quarter of the Bonnie Dick. A compelling lesson from the deployment for me, ignorant as I was, was the total reliance on the afloat logistic chain for everything we did. Without it, the ship would last three or so days at best before returning to harbour. The replenishment at sea training we had received at Cerberus had been, shall I say, indicative. With a hose slung between two sets of shear legs and a block and tackle hanging from a gum tree. I had seen underway replenishment at close hand before when Stuart had refuelled from Sydney on its short deployment to Vung Tau. Being a diligent midshipman, I had drawn suitable diagrams in my journal. But I'd never ac actually had to do anything other than watch. The doing was always handled by seasoned senior sailors. And in any case, the DDG layout looked nothing like that uh, block and tackle hanging from the tree and quite alien to the drawing in my journal. Thus I was startled soon, soon after arriving on the gun line to be told by the XO to proceed to the midship replenishment station and take charge. I was given a multicoloured baton similar to a ping pong bat with which to discharge my duties. I looked at the sea and at USS Sacramento looming up ahead and desperately sought a seasoned sailor to tell me what to do. The photograph is, is of Hobart replenishing from Sacramento, who you can see as a shadow in the background, showing the midship's replenishment station. Note the helicopter supplying uh, aft, and note the uh, gentleman standing alone on the left of the picture with his hands in his pockets, which is Sub-Lieutenant Cotswold tr trying to work out what to do. Fortunately, a senior sailor was there in the shape of Chief Petty Officer Quartermaster Gunner Miller, whose campaign ribbon suggested sea service in both World War II and Korea. He quietly told me when to turn the green side of the bat towards the Sacramento and when the red. Now, he said, wave it in a circular motion like you're washing a window and they will check away on that there rope and wave it side to side if you think the rope's going to fall into the water. I'll do the rest, he said. And this I did, while behind me I could hear his voice, run away with the in-haul, walk back together, steady lads, take the weight, heave away roundly, and so on. I performed my role several times a week after that, 
and thus became quite expert in heavy jack stay transfers. I have re revered that gentleman ever since and also developed a deep admiration for the physical strength and stamina, stamina of the sailors during these evolutions. In the second photo, we're approaching the replenishment ship and preparing the replenishment station. For much of the deployment, I was the bombardment control officer, a sort of glorified communications number, when in the third degree of readiness. This was most of the time in operating south of the DMZ or outside gun range of the coast when north of it. I was watching watch about as a member of a small bombardment management team. In the middle watch of the 17th of June, as you've heard, Hobart was attacked by an F-4 Phantom aircraft of the US 7th Air Force. The F-4 Phantom, for whatever reason, mistook Hobart for something hostile and launched four Sparrow III semi-active air intercept missiles, three of which hit the target. The incident was later described as operational error, a description which Hobart Ship's company unanimously derided as a gross understatement. As luck would have it, I was the on-watch BCO at the time. The captain had been called because an aeroplane was observed on radar acting in an unusual way and not displaying electronic identification, IFF. That was not unusual. The aircraft was not designated to the weapon systems because of the limits of the rules of engagement. In any case, the Mark 68 director was temporarily offline for unscheduled maintenance. I remember the first missile strike quite clearly. It was just after 0300 and it hit in the starboard, in the starboard boat space. The personnel boat was not embarked. There wasn't a noticeable blast, nor an explosion, nor a deafening roar. From my position against the starboard bulkhead in the CIC, it felt like a, a gentle vibration, almost an imperceptible murmur. But I knew something was wrong. You do not appreciate how in tune you become with the sounds and feels of the ship between, beneath your feet. That gentle, temporary vibration did not fit. Its frequency or its noise was foreign to the usual sounds and feel of the ship. The missile had an expanding rod warhead which shattered into thousands of pieces of shrapnel, each with a consistency of wrought iron. Great damage was caused and the Tata AA missile defence system was ruined, as were the two air warning radars. The captain ordered action stations, as was the, was the doctrine of the time. Sailors stumbled out of the after seamen's mess, donning their action dress, and headed forward. Sailors from the forward seamen's mess headed aft. On the bridge and in the CIC, reports flowed in. HQ1 closed up, ECP closed up, gunnery systems closed up, and each one being ticked off in China Graph pencil on a little perspex state board. The officers of quarters were, were roused from their daydreams and my headset was flooded with reports as the action crews closed up, demanding information I did not have and reporting on the damage and casualties they encountered. The captain ordered full ahead and manoeuvred the ship violently. That's my beloved midship's 
replenishment station reorganised. Note the hole in the deck. Oh, no, it's not. Let's try that one. There we go. The ship was experienced in going to action stations, and this was achieved quickly. By prior arrangement, I remained at my post in the CIC, and my opposite number went to the bridge. The second and third missile strikes ensued. The forward gun opened fire in the general direction of the aircraft, verbally guided by the AO control officer, who was at the time the same chief petty officer QMG previously mentioned. That photograph is a two-deck starboard uh, aft passageway, and that's me wondering why it was that the laundry had to survive. <laughs> a fine young sailor, Abel Seaman Gibson, he's not in the room by any chance, is he? No. A fine young sailor he was. He had been off watch. He lunged into his seat beside me as a record taker. After we stood down from action stations, some time later, he returned to his bunk at the after end of the seaman's mess to find a large chunk of the missile's engine casing resting there, having completed its journey through the transom, hole in transom, through the gunner's store, through the engineer's workshop, and through that final bulkhead into the aft seaman's mess. Being the man he was, his first concern, he told me, was whether he'd be asked to pay for the damage to his bedding. That photo, I should say, is courtesy of the Hobart Association Queensland website. I note in passing that the kill probability of a Sparrow III missile in 1968 was less than 10% against aircraft. But the vertical surfaces and horizontal surfaces of the ship's hull were ideal for a semi-active homing missile. I developed and retained a serious scepticism of surface ships against air attack in the absence of air superiority. I wondered how we would have coped if one of those Kennel anti-ship missiles that the North were rumoured to have had had actually been fired at us. In the operations room of later ships, I was very suspicious of strange aircraft in the vicinity, or even friendly aircraft acting strangely and I had a propensity to consider them hostile until proven otherwise. The opportunities offered by the Naval Combat Data System when operating in the fully automated mode were not lost on me. And I could understand how USS Vincennes might have accidentally shot down that Iranian Airbus in 1988. I became suspicious of action stations and was a devotee of the Principal Warfare Officer concept when it emerged as a trial tactic in 1970, and the flexibility it gave to fight the ship in the third degree of readiness and in the absence of forewarning, especially when given the tools provided by an automated data combat system. When many years later I was Director of Electronic Warfare, I pushed the Wind and Nulka project because of the speed of response it could provide and also a policy for radar absorbent material for HMA ships among other things. The 17th of June was somewhere in the back of my mind, I'm sure. Sensitive to the politics of the matter, the Commander-in-Chief Pacific Admiral Ulysses S. Grant Sharp personally visited the ship accompanied by the Commander U.S. 7th Fleet and two Rear Admirals. 
Admiral Sharp spoke to those present, which the ship's company treated with studied indifference, considering the Admiral's pop-by to be token in nature. Perhaps a little unfairly, he was, after all, a very busy man. Following repairs in Subic, Hobart was assigned to market time operations south of the DMZ to stop the flow of troops and supplies into South Vietnam. Like Sea Dragon in the north, market time had a major bombardment component, including firing on targets of opportunity, random harassing fire and pre-planned attacks on known enemy positions. In this case, however, the enemy were not in a position to shoot back. The spotting of fall of shot was reliable and close cooperation was possible with naval gunfire liaison officers who routinely visited the ship by swift boat. There's one shown there. And there are some naval gunfire support liaison officers to prove my point. A discussion of naval operations in Vietnam cannot avoid the elephant in the room previously mentioned, a place called the city of Alongapo, where the naval station was located. The main street, as you have heard, was a red light district of extensive proportions, full of colour, noise, street food and jeepneys, and which catered for every hedonistic desire. Nothing I had experienced in Sydney's King's Cross Rex Hotel or the Texas Tavern prepared me for this. Aussies seemed to favour the new Jollo Bar, certainly at the start. <clears throat> when I first entered this establishment, there were blue movies screening on the ceiling. I hadn't seen a blue movie before, and it took me a while to work out what was happening, <laughs> it being upside down and all. I soon discovered that the Chuck Wagon Cafe and the Officers Club within the base were suitable alternatives and to which I became a habitué. The Chuck Wagon was a sort of restaurant, bar and gaming house where I first encountered something called a gherkin. This was a foreign object to me. The Chuck Wagon is now buried under the Legenda Resort, according to Wikipedia, and the O Club is a casino apparently. However, you can still obtain relics. This is an original menu board from the chuck wagon. It's actually flat. And it was available for purchase on eBay last week for five US dollars. Not that I could escape a longer pay for long because the three sub-lieutenants were assigned the duty of shore patrol officer. In this capacity, I became associated with something akin to a combat unit called the USN Shore Patrol, staffed by some seriously large and humorless men wearing white tin hats and bearing enormous truncheons, of which they were very proud. My Shore Patrol uniform was red sea rig, complete with cummerbund. <laughs> and I took a copy of War and Peace with me, knowing that the troops would generally behave themselves, which they normally did, and I sat in a corner of the USN Shore Patrol headquarters reading Tolstoy. The USN Shore Patrol were puzzled by this behaviour and sometimes would insist that I join them in their paddy wagons for a tour of flesh pots and dark places of a longo, longapo that I would have preferred not to know about. I'll skip the ducklings and the crocodile. <laughs> Curiously, the most 
tedious stage of the deployment was the passage home. There were permanent loan lists to muster, a huge backlog of maintenance to be done, refit planning to undertake, personnel reports had to be written, and the minutiae of admin so readily jettisoned within the, within the area of operations had to be restored. Divisions were held, classified books were mustered, the wardroom audit was completed, and so on. Close relationships formed in the reality of combat operations and mutual alliance started to dis distance as each of us reverted to our peacetime persona. The release of the operational imperative had left lingering indifference to peacetime routine in its wake. I looked forward to birthing and seeing on the wharf my then girlfriend who had written to me regularly. She wasn't there, <laughs> but did come to dinner on board that night. On the 15th of November 1968, I posted out of Hobart to join the patrol boat Bandelier in Maryborough as the commissioning executive officer, unaware that I would later serve in DDGs on three more occasions, twice more in Hobart, who over time became like a friend. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. And now we're here through the lens of a junior sailor and uh, Peter Everly. Good afternoon, I'll say, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Peter Everly, and I would like to thank Admiral Shackleton and the organisers for the opportunity to be part of today's activities. My brief is to represent the lower deck on my experiences in the DDG, its impact on me, and the service later on. This presentation will be training aid free, so there can, I can guarantee there'll be no harm given to whiteboard markers, overhead projections, or overhead slides. But before I start my journey, I'd like to just indulge you with my um, experience of just a moment. I've only served in one DDG, HMAS Perth. I joined the ship in 1967 after my AB's course at HMAS Watson. The ship was coming out of an ICARA fit out, and I was one of a small group which joined the ship's company primarily made up of commissioning crew. The idea of my uniqueness is the following. I was involved in three Vietnam deployments, two Northwest Indian Ocean deployments, served under six commanding officers, and served in every rate from ABRP2 to Warren Officer. This ship was certainly a part of my naval career pro progression. I was promoted AB, I was confirmed as an acting leading seaman, I was promoted acting PO, served as a chief, and promoted to Warren Officer on board. My promotion to Warren Officer is one I'll always remember. A minute past midnight on the due date, and a good chief is always there when his captain's present. The CPO's coxswain entered the, the ops room and called for captain's requestman to fall in. As I was about to tear him a new bottom hole for the um, increased noise level, a request was read out concerning my promotion. This was a shock as I had no knowledge of what was going on. The captain called out to the direction officer, do you support the request for this, officer, for this sailor's promotion? The direction officer said no. <laughs> and the captain replied, overridden again, D, <laughs> and congratulated me on my promotion. My good fortune continued 
as I was um, placed on a watch bill in front of the sweet console and advised I had the middle watch. <laughs> so thank you for that indulgence. However, to me, the DDG for the junior sailor uh, proposed opportunity. Until these ships arrived, we were, in my view, a microcosm of the RN, particularly in procedures, equipment, etc. From these men of steel and ships of wood, I was called a plastic. And from sleeping in a hammock, I now had a bunk, a locker that closed properly, and was totally confused as what I was taught at RP school had no relationship to the gear I was to operate on board this new ship. I remember the onboard training from our leading hands, how they took time and patience in bringing us the raw bone up to speed, the support also of the senior sailors in making sure you learnt your job, how the ship operated and what was expected from you. Even boat's crew's duties had those little differences. The ship had to be stopped to release the boat. Ship's husbandry took on a different note as we set about maintaining the ship's upper deck. There was a pride within the crew which was infectious. The sailors simply loved their ship and their new ship welcomed us newcomers. This was the Navy I wanted to be part of. Our captain, who was then Peter Doyle, called the ship Australia's first guided missile destroyer and he let everybody know it. I remember one day Perth coming alongside the P&O ship Acadia off Jarvis Bay. That's so the passengers could have a, a good look at Australia's first guided missile destroyer. Our breakaway and fast turn must have been a great impression on the passengers' inspection after we um, would have made a great sight for those people. We also had the opportunity to ride with the ship in very heavy seas as we were called to assist in taking an ill cook from Macquarie Island. But the details of these stories and what underlays and what happened, I believe, belong in another chapter. However, most of my time in DDGs was spent operating with USN units as part of a task group. For example, Vietnam and the Northwest Indian Ocean deployments. My Vietnam years included a couple of trips on the Vung Tau Ferry, in 1966 and the three Perth deployments 1967 through 1971. My Perth duties over these years included logging the UHF distress frequency and watching the UID4 direction finder in case of downed aircraft or aircraft in distress operating over North Vietnam. Perth, following the good work of Hobart and enjoying the RAN's high reputation that had been established by Hobart, was quickly moved into Sea Dragon operations off North Vietnam. These continued until the North Vietnam bombing cessation in 1968. I was also the general operations plot compiler. We had a large plot table set up in the Electronic Warfare Office, as at that time the space in the ops room which was to be given over to the GOP was then the MSO, the main signal office. I remember returning to the gun line on one occasion from an r and in Hong Kong. When we left Hong Kong, the nuclear-powered ships USS Enterprise and her escort, Bainbridge, were also there. However, not long after reporting on the appropriate circuit, up comes Enterprise with her position. As we had to check in each hour, I found it extraordinary the amount of ocean that Enterprise and Bainbridge could cover in an hour. Later on, I was to be the spot net operator. 
speaking with shore and air spotters in conducting NGS activities. I felt this to be quite a rewarding job as you became involved in the ship's operations and working with the command team. During these periods, the RPs worked in defence watches, a two watch system, and I did not mind this routine. We were, however, at that time required to turn to out of watch for the regular unrep, as I say, at the AKA replenishment at sea. Re-ammunition was a very important factor and getting the rounds across and stowed in quick time became competitive as we strived to quicken our timers, which allowed us less time away from the gun line. Replenishing food was also interesting, as I used to notice the various labels on the food items in the cartons, for example, oranges from Israel. Another important fact to me was the great quality of the mail service. Being recently married before my first deployment, mail was certainly good for the morale. Also, a bigger pay packet made an impression. We were paid in American currency on departure of Sid from Sydney and did not have to pay income tax. And for those who were married, a couple of extra dollars was very welcome. Opened some more doors in Longapo, I guess. Another recall, one pretty much etched in my mind, was the day we received a direct hit from North Vietnam shore batteries. It was close to 0800 on the 18th of December, 1967. Those of us coming off watch were ripping into the old savoury mince and fried eggs when the direction officer piped that the ship had been hit. And of course, that backed up the noise we had just heard. During Sea Dragon, the ship initially went to a modified action state called Bombardment Action Stations when the ship was on a fire mission. This meant those in two watches stayed in position if on watch and those off watch went to backup positions Example, the RP sat in the passageway and waited till they were called for or fallen out after the event. My task when off watch was to close up the emergency conning position with the XO. My job was to check the internal communications on the ECP. The day we were hit, I remember being closed up with the XO. We had to wear the full gear, flak jacket, these enormous helmets that carried the um, sound-powered telephones underneath them. And I was listening to the lookouts calling. Actually, they were shouting the call of fire relative to the ship, the fall of shot, I should say. I'm still searching for the term that was bloody close in gunnery BRs. Sadly, four were wounded with two being medevaced. I did meet the XO many years later. We had both retired from the Navy and he was a former Vice Admiral, Ian Knox. And I advised him that I was pretty shit scared on that day, sir. And I was very relieved for him to say in reply, he was too. Actually, exactly a year later, the same time, the same menu, the ship was strafed again. But my role, as I was again off watch, was to sit in the passageway and hear the shrapnel come across the ship's side. Later on, the closing up of the off watch was reviewed, as it did, not, as it did make for tiredness which led to mistake and errors. And I have a personal story on that issue, but again, that might be for the next chapter. The two watch system was maintained during my time, even in the workup periods off the East Coast. Some of the XOs weren't too happy with that. They liked their RPs on the other deck. However, we were training for the deployments, 
to follow and the training was essential as in the ops room, the junior sailors did have responsibility to the command team for their actions. After Vietnam, Perth was awarded a USN commendation for both her first and second deployments. Crew members received a ribbon to recognise the ship's achievements and these are ribbons I wear proudly today on those commemorative occasions. In summary of those years, I learnt a lot and the way I carried out my responsibilities and leadership's duties later on was influenced by those I served with in Vietnam. I've already mentioned the word opportunity. I believe the DDGs provided enormous opportunities for those sailors who wish to grasp them. For example, take the electrical rates. They did specialised courses in the USA. They had rapid promotion. And again, their regular postings to DDGs, to DDGs. They had increased responsibility in maintaining systems that operated to save the ship and the lives of the ship's company. And in speaking with these people later on today, or later on, they now realise the impact these ships had on their careers. In my own category, the RP branch, the opportunity was working closely with the command team. Air control tasking and feeling trusted that your input was important and acted upon. It placed you in a position where you wanted to succeed and not be one that let the team down. Looking back with the uh, benefit of hindsight, the relationships between members of the command team with the commanding officer and other members of that team allowed me to form my own methods and standards of working with others, picking what I thought were the good traits and examples and doing away with the not so good. These influences learnt and picked up from officers and senior sailors, some with World War II and career experience, to the modern educated young officers allowed me to operate with the confidence of my post-Navy career in senior middle management positions in the human relations field. Another highlight that I thought resulted from my DDG service, and one I feel was a great help, was being selected for the exchange program with the USN. Coming from a background of working with USN, it was easy to fit in with their procedures and their methods. This helped a great deal in the instructor role and being at sea in their ops rooms. These two and a half years will be remembered always, and as I was accompanied, this posting made a very impression, big impression on my family. My wife and I adopted an American daughter and brought her home with our two boys. By my eldest son, who always wanted to return to the USA, he finally did with the posting to the embassy in Washington a few years ago. I also wish to thank a member of this audience for his wonderful support in getting me to apply for this posting in the first place. I won't mention his name, but I think he may have been the FDO around the 1976 era. Another major learning point was knowing the ship as a junior sailor in a manual state and returning later on as a senior sailor to an automated world. Before joining the ship as a chief RP, I wondered how it would feel. Fortunately, I had the recent experience of USN and had undertaken NCDS training at Fishwick here in the ACT. I was also lucky knowing, I was also lucky knowing how the other internal parts of the ops room work, for example, the communications layouts and other gear not associated with NCDS. My ID at that time was a PWO and kept watches alongside the other specialist PWOs as SWICs. 
At this time, our, cap our uh, commanding officer, whom I have the highest respect, and may he rest in peace, was a hard taskmaster and required tasks to be carried out to 110% effort. I employed myself and on an 18-hour day with instructions to be on call at other times. The troops were in a defence two-watch system which included the petty officers. The petty officers were tasked with looking after and supervising the daily activities while I concentrated on and planned for what was coming up tomorrow. I had access to the signals that came into ops and I was able to ensure communications, rendezvous points, rainform signal traffic interpretation and intel items was completed to avoid panic. I say that because the CEO could create panic pretty quickly, if he wished. And I talk of Adrian Cummins. The main benefit in my case was having most of the answers to the queries the CEO had. Also with the PYD keeping watch, I did not see him as regularly as I wanted. Therefore, I was working to and supporting all four POs. I was fortunate that I had a good relationship with the commanding officer having passed my trial by fire when I first worked for him as his senior RP while his head of the fleet training group. And it's interesting that we remained in contact right until his death. I always wonder what it, would have, what it must have been like for those previous chiefs in the early years, coming on board with the possibility that the troops may know more about their gear than the chief. In my case, I didn't get caught in becoming an operator and being isolated in the ops room, something I learned from the USN. In some areas, the junior sailors were more knowledgeable with the NCDS equipment than I. I read about the ship, what the equipment could do, and personally maintained the ops room logs. And with the training I did, I was confident I could not be bullshitted too, as I had the confidence with the junior eights and explained why they could put their ships into the action state by the work they did and the detections they made. This reinforced the importance of their roles. I'll close at this point, as I say, preparing for today relied upon drawing on past memories, some great and some not so great. My service in our DDGs was a life-changing experience for me. It is one I will not forget and is always the basis of the war stories we like to tell. And I must admit, these stories get better each time they are told, as another Navy habit of black catting your mate kicks in. But again, I thank the organisers for the opportunity to be involved today. Being the final speaker, I can truly say that I enjoyed the other presentations, and I thank the presenters for their efforts and the information on this great subject. Uh, thanks very much, Peter. And uh, that concludes the third and final episode of the REN DDGs in Vietnam. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this video and podcast. And uh, also we invite you to look at the website of the Un University of New South Wales, Canberra, the Naval Studies Group page for more information about the series. And finally, we'd like to thank Navanti Australia for the generous support to this three-part series.